Hello, I'm Winifred Robinson. In this audio recording, I'm going to talk with two philosophers about the morality of abortion. They are John Cottingham, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Reading, and Jennifer Saul, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Now, we don't expect to be able to settle everything in the time we have available, but at least we hope to show how it's possible to discuss extremely contentious topics in a productive and philosophical way. So I'd like to begin by asking you both what role you think that emotion should play in a philosophical discussion about a controversial topic like abortion. Many of us know how we feel about it, and some people will feel quite passionately in favour or against. Jenny, feelings, where do they come in? Well, first, quite generally, I think it's a mistake to think that reasoning can or should be done in isolation from the emotions. I also think emotions can be a source of knowledge in their own right. So, for example, a woman listening to standard discussions of abortion that focus just on the fetus and whether the fetus is the sort of thing that one should be allowed to kill might find herself feeling uncomfortable or even angry and not sure why that is, have some sense that there's something gone wrong here, something being left out. And that emotional response, if pressed further, can be very illuminating because then you can come to realize that actually these discussions are leaving out the fact that a fetus is a thing that's inside a woman's body and that the woman needs to be thought about as well in these discussions. But you wouldn't get that illumination if you didn't press on beyond the initial emotional reaction to further reflection. And I think just working from emotions especially in a topic like this, can be incredibly unproductive because emotions run so high that you wind up with crowds of people waving fetuses and coat hangers at each other and no progress is made in thinking about anything from doing that. John? I think the emotions play a very big part. Philosophers, I think, sometimes tend to think that philosophical debate is a matter of pure abstract discussion, cut off from any human involvements or passions. but And that's an ancient prejudice of, of philosophers going back to some of the strands in, in Plato. But actually, I, I, I agree. I think that emotions can deepen our perceptions. That's to say they're not merely noise, but they enrich our sensibilities. So knowing how I feel, that's not a bad place to start. It perhaps can be the first word, but should never be the last word in philosophy. Well, how about the language that we're going to use then? Because it seems hard when you hear people arguing about abortion even to agree a common vocabulary before you even start with the big questions. Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, if you start the discussion off by saying, we're going to be talking today about whether or not it's okay for a mummy to murder the baby in her tummy, you're not going to have a very productive discussion because that's already prejudice in the discussion in lots of ways. It's referring to the woman as a mother before she's given birth. It's referring to the fetus as a baby while it's still in the womb. And it's referring to abortion as murder. And murder is generally understood as wrongful killing. So you've already built in that this is something that's wrong. And so that's a terrible way to, the, to start the discussion, which is why I would want to use neutral vocabulary and talk about a woman and a fetus and abortion or killing rather than murder. I think one of the problems here is that there are many different discourses involved. There's the legalistic discourse of, of rights and duties. There's the Christian or Christian-derived 
discourse which stresses things like love and sacrifice. There's the utilitarian discourse about maximizing the interests of all concerned. And negotiating through these different areas of discourse, I think, is, is very, can, can be very difficult. I don't think there's any neutral Olympian perspective from which we as philosophers can uh, adjudicate between them. Nonetheless, I think we have to try to find the right answers. And I do think the more we look at these things, the more certain ways of talking about them start to compel our allegiance. The abortion debate's usually divided into two components. A question about whether the interests of the pregnant woman trump those of the fetus. And a question about whether the fetus even has interests of a kind that we need to take seriously. Let's start then with the first of these questions. Jenny, a philosopher thinking about the relative importance of the woman's preferences and the interests of the fetus might start with Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist analogy. Could you briefly outline that for us? Sure. Um, Thompson put forward this analogy at a time when the debate over abortion consisted largely of discussions of the status of the fetus and whether it would be acceptable to kill such a thing, whether it was a full person or not. And these discussions seemed to be at sort of an impasse. And her goal was to show that even if you settled the status of the fetus, and even if you presuppose that the fetus was a person, abortion might still be morally legitimate. So... Thompson asks you to imagine that you wake up in bed in a hospital with a famous violinist attached to you using your kidneys. And you're told that you were kidnapped and brought here because this violinist has a kidney ailment and will die unless he is able to make use of precisely your kidneys. You're the only person who matches perfectly. And he must do this for nine months, and then he'll be fine and go on about his life, and you can go on about yours. And if you disconnect yourself from the violinist, he will die. Thompson argues that, well, she expects you to have the response that it would be morally acceptable to disconnect yourself from this violinist, even though, without question, he's a fully-fledged person, and not only a fully-fledged person, but a talented and clearly valuable one. So she takes this to show that sometimes it can be acceptable to kill someone even if they are a fully-fledged person dependent upon you for life. She also takes it to be the case that abortion is relevantly analogous to this, so that just as it's acceptable to disconnect yourself from the violinist, despite the fact that he's a fully-fledged person, it would be acceptable to have an abortion even if we assume for the sake of argument that the fetus is a fully-fledged person. Do you think this analogy works? Um, no, not really. <laughs> Why not? Uh, um, well, I think the first point that's meant to show is surely right, that it can be morally acceptable to kill someone who is a fully-fledged person. That's, that's surely true. We think that about the case of self-defense. Um, most of us do anyway. We even think that about innocent people in some cases. So imagine that an innocent person is launched at you via a cannon and the only way to save yourself is to you know, knock that innocent person aside in a way that will kill them. I think most people think that would be morally acceptable. So I think that point's right, but I don't think you need her violinist analogy to show that point. 
And I think if you're not already convinced that it's sometimes acceptable to kill an innocent person in self-defense, you're unlikely to be convinced by her analogy. Um, I have had students who have insisted that you are morally obligated to stay in bed for nine months with a violinist. And if you say, well, what if it's for a year, they'll say, yes, a year. And if you say, what if it's 20 years, they'll say, yes, 20 years. And you say, what if it's a whole orchestra? They'll say, yes, a whole orchestra, as many as you want, as long as you want, you've got to do it. And I think if that's the way that you look at these issues, it's not going to convince you. Um, But I also think, perhaps more importantly, the analogy fails because it isn't as analogous to abortion as it needs to be. So most people respond to the analogy by noticing very quickly that you've been put in the bed without your knowledge against your consent and had the violence hooked up to you. And in the case of consensual sex, you've entered into an act which has resulted in the pregnancy and you've done so consensually. And this is a disanalogy between the cases. I think people often take that point too far because I don't think consent has the effect that they take it to have. So I think a lot of objectors on these grounds think that because you've consented to sex, you've therefore consented to have a child. I think that's a mistake. Um, I think if you've consented to sex, you've consented to an act which in some small fraction of cases results in a pregnancy, but you haven't made any decision at all about what you will do if that pregnancy occurs. The act of consenting to sex doesn't commit you to anything on those grounds. If you engage in a behavior that has some risk, it doesn't necessarily commit you to any particular action should that risk be realized. So if you smoke, you haven't committed yourself to not getting treatment if you get lung cancer. Um, If you have sex consensually, you haven't committed yourself to what you'll do if a pregnancy occurs. John Cottingham, how does the analogy work or not work for you? Well, Analogies can be useful, but I, I think we need to be wary of them. They're often constructed to get the result you, you were aiming for in the first place. Um, Thompson's argument really hinges, it seems to me, on the idea of independent adult citizens in, in the first instance. Here's you, here's this violinist, he's hooked up to you, you're within your rights to unplug. That's clearly true, I think. But what if you're within your rights, but you still ought to make sacrifices for that person as a good Samaritan? And what if the relationship makes a difference? I mean, the violinist is someone you don't, you've never seen before. What if it's a friend? What if it's a relative? I know people who've given up a kidney for a child. They were within their rights not to, but... They felt they ought to, and arguably we would agree, they ought to make that sacrifice. Parenthood involves all sorts of sacrifices, which we weren't legally obliged to make, but which arguably we ought to make. So the analogy doesn't, I think, settle things, or or rather it has lots of dimensions which you can start to explore. Jenny, is there an analogy that, that works better for you? Well... I'm pro-choice, but um, I think these issues are tremendously complicated, and there isn't any one argument that I think is the, you know, the knockdown perfect argument that settles things. But I've been very impressed by the work of the American philosopher Margaret Little. She points out that to be pregnant is to be in a state of great intimacy 
with another being, that they're living inside your body, using your blood, using the food you take into your body, using the oxygen you take into your body, inhabiting you in a way that never occurs in any other situation. This is actually a very intimate relationship. And as an intimacy, it can be a beautiful and wonderful and meaningful thing if you want to be in that state of intimacy, just as sexual intimacy can be. But just as with sexual intimacy, to be forced into an intimacy that you don't want to be in is a grave violation. So she thinks that it's precisely the intimacy of pregnancy which renders forced gestation such a morally problematic thing, and she takes that to be a reason that abortion has to be legally permitted so that women are not forced into this intimacy against their will. The, the intimacy point is, is very important, I think. And clearly, Thompson's argument is strongest in the rape case. I mean, it's a direct analogy with an act which has been done to you against your will. It's progressively less strong, I think, as we move away from that involuntary case to cases which are either voluntary or cases where the pregnancy is a consequence of uh, an act undertaken without um, complete consent to, to, to all its consequences. So forced intimacy clearly is something which most people recoil from, as, 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 as Jenny uh, rightly says. But I think it should be added to that that the preg that pregnancy is not viewed by most, by the great majority of pregnant women in that way. On the contrary, it's, it's viewed, I think, psychologically as a growing involvement which might have started perhaps without uh, it being part of the, the projects and the plans and the consented to arrangements, but which gradually, as it were, uh, assumes the dimension of commitment as time goes on. And that's clearly true of parenthood as well. I just want to clarify, I didn't mean to suggest that all or even most pregnancies are experienced as unwanted intimacies. Um, I was solely concerned with the cases where the woman genuinely does not want that pregnancy and therefore experiences it as an unwanted intimacy. Yes. Uh, even, I, I, I think that's a very fair point. But even there, I think w we need to be um, careful about genuinely does not want. In the violinist case, there's been a definite violation analogous to rape. In the case of most pregnancies, that isn't the case. And that issue, the, the voluntariness or involuntariness of the beginning of the pregnancy, is a different issue from whether the woman may want to carry on with it. Absolutely. I so. agree with that. I want to talk now about the moral status of the fetus, since what we decide here might make the whole debate about the competing interests of the woman and the fetus irrelevant if the fetus isn't among the kinds of things that have interests. John, several philosophers think that the fact that the fetus is biologically human is pretty much an irrelevance, morally speaking. They argue that being a person is what makes you a member of the moral community. That is the community of beings with interests that we should take account of. What do you make of this approach? Well, morality is not limited to humans, obviously, 
But our humanity, in my view, is highly relevant. People talk of fraternity, for example, the brotherhood of man. We have natural ties of affinity which link us to members of our species anywhere on the planet. I mean, that's one reason, I think, why people feel such a strong inclination to respond to when humans are struck by disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis. And that gets us back to what we started with, the wisdom of our fundamental feelings and instincts, which I think shouldn't be filtered out. As far as persons goes, yes, personal qualities, reasoning, intelligence, a rich conscious life, are of great value. But there's a caveat. As soon as we start limiting our, our moral concern to those who enjoy personal attributes, I think we're taking a step down, if it's not too dramatic to say so, down the road to the death camps, to eliminating those who are abnormal, subnormal, senile, or, or too young to have fully developed those personal qualities. And that, in my view, is, is a horror. Um, helpless, incapacitated humans, non-persons, um, I think, deserve our care just as much as articulate, rational, fully personal humans. Jennifer? Well, it's very compelling to think about helpless, incapacitated humans and the need for taking their rights seriously. You think about a three-second-old fusion of a sperm and an egg... It's very, very difficult to think that we should be taking those rights as seriously as those of a person, or sorry, of a human much further along. And if it's mere humanity that matters, you've got that in the three-second-old embryo. So I think, I think there are intuitions that can pull in both directions on that. Jennifer, what about the problem of infanticide? Because if a fetus is not a person, why is a newborn a person then? One thing that's worth mentioning before I properly answer that question is that defenders of abortion draw the line in different places about when in a pregnancy abortion would be permitted. And there are many, many defenders of abortion who would not permit abortion at eight months and three weeks. So they don't necessarily think that what marks the difference is being born. But there have been arguments made that draw a morally significant distinction between newborn infants and fetuses. Not necessarily on the grounds that the newborn infants are persons and the fetuses aren't, but on different grounds. So one way of distinguishing them is to say that newborn infants have become a member, members of the human community who we care about in a certain kind of way. And that confers on them a sort of value that they don't have when they're fetuses. I'm not actually so impressed with that line of argument myself. Um, it, it seems to have the implication that if a newborn infant just doesn't look very nice and we don't really like it, it doesn't have that sort of value, and so it doesn't have these rights. And I, I think that leaves things way too much up to um, human beings with their foibles and prejudices. So I'm not 
that pleased with that. Another way of distinguishing neonates and fetuses, however, seems to be more significant, which is that in the case of a fetus, it's living inside a woman's body and dependent upon that woman. And so you have room for a kind of conflict of rights between the woman and the fetus, which is no longer there once the fetus is born and has an existence outside her body and is not dependent on her in that way. The conflict of rights disappears, and so things weigh up differently in the balance. John? If we go back to the conceptus, the fetus, we are thinking of the future, what it will grow into. And future potentialities are important, I think, just as if I were to uproot a sapling which, if left undisturbed, would grow into a magnificent oak tree in 20 years' time. Even though it's just a speck, what it's going to become is important. We can't discount that. But um, I don't think we can rest all the weight on the future. The respect we owe to a human life, I think, isn't contingent. It's not dependent on what it will achieve tomorrow or next year. Otherwise, the elderly person who who has nothing more to achieve would no longer be entitled to, to respect. And that kind of utilitarianism, which just looks at future consequences, uh, seems to me the antithesis of of morality. Once again, it risks taking us a step down towards the the death camp. So thinking about the future helps us to see what we're doing, uh, but it doesn't settle the moral questions, I think. John Cottingham, Jenny Saul, thank you both for taking part. Thank you. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.